0: Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Associate Professor at Westchester University, Ken Clark. Thanks for tuning in to you this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I'm absolutely delighted to bring Ken Clark on this episode today. So Ken has been firmly on the list for a long time and was definitely moved up that list when he presented at the recent Altis virtual conference. So it was a pleasure to get Ken on, um, someone who has an incredible knowledge from a coach perspective and a research perspective when it comes to sprinting and getting people fast. So in this episode, we start off with a little bit around Ken's research, which those of you who are looking to get their athletes fast will we'll have come across multiple times, no doubt. So then we have a little look at judging and assessing non-sprinters against a sprinters model. So it's something we've discussed a little bit before with Jonas Doddy and Stuart McMillan. Then we have a look at the differences, what separates them, and then separating elite sprinters from non-elite sprinters. Then we have a little chat around velocity profiling versus total time, and then have a little look at the end around resisted sprinting. So a really interesting episode with Ken super super insightful from a coach's perspective but also a research perspective and them two marry up really really nicely in this episode so you'll absolutely love it um if you want to get your athletes fast definitely check this out and um hope you enjoy This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Perch. Perch enables velocity-based training, no strings attached. Engineered at MIT, Perch uses small and mobile cameras to monitor and manage weight room performance without detracting from it. By passively collecting speed and power data, delivering it in real time to athletes and storing it for post-workout analysis, Perch enhances workouts, reduces injuries and saves time. Perch works with every level of organisation, from the 2019 National Championship LSU football team to the NFL's New York Giants, military installations, high schools and to a number of growing sports performance facilities and even individual garage gyms. Perch is portable, easy to install and intuitive to use, making it ideal for every facility and every training goal. No more pre-workout setup, no more attachments to athletes and barbells, no more broken strings set perch up once and optimize every rep reach out to perch today and for exclusive deals and offers tell them rob sent you by going to perch.fit forward slash pacey this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs. So Kitman Labs partners with leading sports teams to help them consistently achieve the highest levels of performance by increasing the impact of their data. So over 200 teams across the globe rely on Kitman Labs' performance intelligence platform to quantify the cost of performance and injury and receive the right insights at the right time. Through unique, outcome-driven analytics and the most advanced athlete management system, teams can align their organizations around a shared view of what it takes to drive performance and health and move at the speed of sport to adjust and continuously improve. If you want to know more about Kitman Labs, head over to www.win.kitmanlabs.com forward slash impact. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, IMU Step from U is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running-based sports. So U have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident, which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing, and sprinting longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defense and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, Head over to their website, imeasureu.com, or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureyou. So, without further ado, over to the episode with Ken Clark. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast. So, this afternoon, I'm delighted to welcome Ken Clark. So, welcome to the podcast, mate. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. Feels like I know you, having spent the last. Hour and a half watching your
1: Altis uh, Altis <laughs> presentation, so thank you much for thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, glad uh, glad you were able to watch that. That was a great platform, and um, yeah, just just really excited to, to be here and and talking all things speed. So absolutely. So anyone who doesn't know who you are, do you just want to give
0: us a bit of an intro on yourself, what you're doing now, what you've done previously, different S and C career, coaching, academia,
1: all sure. Yeah, so uh, I guess my athletic background started, um, you know, youth and high school, uh, played uh, American football and, and baseball in high school. Um, not really a, a great genetically gifted athlete, so I was always working really hard uh, just to try to get better, to get stronger and faster. I, I think like many people in our field, uh, that, that's the case. Um, played, played small college football and then got into coaching after that. Um, initially was in um, American football for, for two years and then transitioned into strength and conditioning and um, was really interested in, you know, just trying to help my athletes, um, again, get faster, stronger, and and seeing if there was established methods or, um, you know, methods that we could develop to to help those athletes uh, consistently make great improvements. Um, After about uh, eight to 10 years in the strength and conditioning field, both uh, in college and then in the private sector, I really got interested in the academic and and research side of things. Um, So in 2007, I did a master's degree Degree. I was lucky enough to have some great mentors at, at Westchester University. Um, we researched uh, resisted sprint training, um, and then after that, the, the research bug really, uh, really got to me. And so, in 2010, uh, went down to Southern Methodist University, studied with Dr. Peter Wayne and Dr. Larry Ryan in the SMU Locomotor Lab, which uh, I think a lot of people know. There's some great research that comes out of there. Um, I was there from 2010 to 2015. It was an incredible experience. Um, and then in 2015, a job opening uh, came up at, at Westchester, uh, which was my alma mater and teaching biomechanics and motor learning. And I jumped at that opportunity to be back in the, the Philadelphia area and at Westchester. And I've been back at, at Westchester for the last five years and uh, teach biomechanics, motor learning, do research in uh, running mechanics, sprinting mechanics and I'm also uh, lucky enough that I've been involved in, in strength and conditioning and um, sprint training at, at Westchester. I'm a, a volunteer assistant sprints coach with the track team as well so it's kind of a it's a really nice mix of uh, teaching, researching and coaching at, at Westchester. So. Awesome. I can definitely relate to that with your experience as an athlete
0: Okay, not particularly genetically gifted, but <laughs> right. trying really hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: that was me to a T. No, no one would ever confuse me with Usain Bolt, I'll put it that way. So,
0: no, like, cool. likewise, likewise. Um, but like we were saying just before I hit record, it's, a, it's an unbelievable time to be involved in speed training. Lots of unbelievable stuff going on. You mentioned the work of Altis beforehand, and they're doing some amazing stuff and just putting it putting the platform out there for the likes of yourself and other researchers and practitioners to share their work, what a, what an exciting time!
1: Yeah, I, I think it's great. There, there's incredible online resources, as you mentioned, like the Altus Education platforms. I've been really um, lucky to be involved with uh, Stu and Andreas and, and Dan and all those guys there. Um, you know, I think there's just some really great researchers around the world who are who are doing incredible things um, from a um, you know a speed science standpoint, if you will. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, Peter Wayne and the SMU Locomotive Performance Lab, obviously, researchers like JB Morin and the Buzotas brothers. Um, I'm also lucky enough to get to work with um, Dr. Ralph Mann and Amber Murphy with USA Track and Field. So there's there's just uh, so many great minds, and and I know I'm forgetting people left and right, uh, Michal Cahill and and uh, John Cronin and some of the things they're doing with um, youth speed development. So um, yeah, just just so many great minds and great research groups around the world. Um, that there's just a lot of um, you know a lot of exciting things in the world of speed for sure. So absolutely. So one thing I want to chat to you about first off,
0: and it's something that's come up quite a few times and it's, I'm, I'm always a little bit cautious of going over all ground, but I think it's, it's certainly not all ground because it's new perspectives. So sure. that's, that'd, be, that'd be really interesting. So the sprint model, so people may look at Stu's stuff that goes out online and think, okay, I'm working with team sport athletes, should I be mirroring my technical model onto for, for, on my on my athletes from Stu's. Um, and I'd just like to get your take on that really of, of judging that team sport athlete on a on a sprint model.
1: Yeah, I mean I, I like Stu's quote and this is usually my starting point with this discussion and, and this quote has become famous, you know, and, and basically it's that we, we know that team sport athletes and sprinters aren't aren't going to run the same way either in training or on the field. But basically, it's important that team sport athletes understand the rules of acceleration and top speed mechanics before, you know, the game breaks those rules, if you will. So um, I, I think it's, you know, important to look at it from a, pu- a few perspectives. So first of all, we, we know that the occurrences for which team sport athletes or in which team sport athletes hit maximum velocity in a game situation are relatively rare. But on the flip side of that coin, you know, it's still important that they they train at top speed. Um, Number two, that there's a lot of constraints, whether it's different visual focus, the need to change direction, um, you know, barriers on the, the field or, or, you know, sidelines, that sort of thing. They have a lot of different um, constraints on the field that are affecting the way they run. Um, and so... Getting back to your original question, when we watch a team sport athlete on the field of play, are they going to run like a hundred meter sprinter? Clearly not. I mean, there's very few situations, perhaps unless it's a real breakaway situation where they're just doing a you know forty to fifty meter linear sprint, where they're going to get into their upright max velocity mechanics, and and even then, only some of them will resemble a sprinter. But um, from my perspective, perhaps I'm a little bit biased. It's still important that we do teach those athletes the, a basic technical model for both acceleration and top speed. And then again, as, as Stu's quote goes, then knowing that their mechanics will change in a game situation um, when the constraints of the game, whether it's the sideline, the opponent, the ball, etc., you know, causes them to run a little bit differently. Um, I think that teaching team sport athletes good mechanics and and teaching to a technical model is really important for a couple of reasons. Um, Number one, you know, decreasing the risk of soft tissue injury during high speed sprinting in training, whether that's in practice or off season conditioning or et cetera. If we don't teach mechanics acceleration or top speed, um, I think just qualitatively speaking, there's going to be an increased risk of injury. So if nothing else we want to teach to a technical model for that reason. Number two, if, Improving mechanics can enhance speed in training from, um, you know, from that improvement in in technique, that's going to allow for greater stimulus. So just, uh, just teaching the mechanics for better training results allows for better training stimulus. So that's the second reason. Number three, if there's even a little bit of transfer, just a little bit from the technique training that we do in practice, acceleration or top speed, that translates or transfers to a game situation, then from my standpoint, it's worth it. Maybe it's just a little bit as far as posture or pelvic position or that sort of thing, if that even just changes a few degrees on the, on the pitch or court or field, then perhaps they're going you know, to run a little bit faster or be a little bit less likely to get injured, strain a strain hamstring, for example. So I, I think, you know, no, we, we should not perhaps hold them to the same exact technical model as a sprinter, but there's definitely some key attractors that we wanna teach towards with our team sport athletes for acceleration and top speed. And I think there's some really important reasons decreasing the risk of injury, enhancing speed for stimulus, perhaps getting a little bit of transfer to a game situation, why we want to you know, always teach good mechanics with our team sport athletes. A really long-winded answer to a short question. No, no, no. no, that's great. Keep going. That's fantastic. I'd just like to dive into that first point. And it's
0: ironic that you should say that because I spend a bit of time going through old podcast episodes and picking out good bits for social media, little videos yep. and things. And one that I came across was J.B. Burins, as you mentioned sure. him before. And it was a, a clip when he was talking about exactly that. Is there a safer way to sprint to um, decrease the risk of, of injury when these athletes make their way to the field or court? Yeah. And you said it was maybe not something that's there in the research now. Um, is, is there anything research-wise on a, a safer way to sprint for along the injury lines or not?
1: You know, I'll only speak uh, anecdotally here because I, yep. I can't cite, cite studies off the top of my head. I, I think some of this research is, uh, is in the works. Um, but I, I think, you know, generally speaking, you could look to um, probably – uh, three or four major points that either you're looking for. I mean, first um, would be posture. And I think this is both acceleration and, and top speed, really, you know, from, from first step all the way throughout. Um, just having a neutral posture, um, head to heel, so to speak, that's going to set up the pelvic position, which in in my opinion is is arguably the most important. Um, training team sport athletes to have a relatively more neutral pelvis is really key. So many athletes, and I deal a lot with American football uh, as it relates to team sport athletes. So many of those athletes have anterior tilt, and and that causes a lot of issues. And and that's both you know they have a, an anterior tilt both structurally and the way they you know just kind of sit all eight hours of the day and and the way that they play. So teaching those athletes to perhaps have a little bit more of a a neutral tilt is important for both um, just speed making them faster, but also uh, injury risk. And I'll get into that more in a second. So first two would be posture and pelvic position. Um, number three would be, you know, backside and frontside thigh movement. Again, backside movement referring to how much the thigh swings back behind the torso line um, during the swing phase and, and frontside thigh movement referring to how much in front of the body or in front of the that line that the thigh is. So generally guiding the thigh movement to occur a little bit more in front of the body. Uh, Again, are they going to look like a sprinter? Perhaps not, but trying to reduce um, excessive backside mechanics in the team sport athletes. And then lastly, um, having a a stiff ground contact uh, that aims to strike under the center of mass. That's not really going to happen past the the first two steps, but um, I think it's a good coaching point, a good aiming point. So um, all four of those points are, are really key. Uh, and I like to talk to them from a, a top-down approach. Basically, if the posture is off, if the if the torso is really uh, hanging forward, hunched forward, or if they're in some sort of arched position, and, and Cameron Jossi talks about that a lot, I believe. He's got some categories that are great. But if the, if the upper body, the trunk and torso are off, that's going to negatively affect things down the chain, specifically the pelvis. And then once you look at the pelvis, once the pelvis gets into anterior tilt, it gets really really difficult to have um, reasonably good frontside mechanics to get good thigh thigh lift in front of the body and with anterior tilt or at least excessive anterior tilt that also has a negative cascade of events down the chain that's going to lead to relatively more backside mechanics and then as the thigh swings in front of the body and as the foot swings in front of the body generally speaking um, that's going to lead to the foot landing further in front of the center of mass. So from posture to pelvic position to thigh mechanics and then to where the foot is striking. And so if the posture's off and the pelvis is off and then the athlete's landing further in front of them, to me, that's where you end up getting into some risk of, of soft tissue injury. So without getting into any studies that have quantified this, Yet, uh, although, again, I, I think that research is probably on its way, but generally speaking, working its way down from posture to pelvis to thigh motion to ground contact, I do think there's clearly better ways to execute sprint mechanics that are both safer, reducing the risk of soft tissue injury, and that enhance performance. I mean, generally speaking, all of those same four things that we just talked about as far as reducing injury risk are also gonna be good for sprint performance. So I, I see it as a as a win-win. And, and even if we're not teaching team sport athletes to necessarily need to exactly match a hundred meter sprint technical model, generally guiding them towards those uh, positions, shapes, however you wanna phrase it, is, is I think a good idea. A cascade effect. Definitely, I, I like to look at it from a top on down. You could view it ground up as well, but uh, at least for me, both from a, a researcher's eye and a coach's eye, to, to me, I typically look top down, and and that's I think that's an easy way to to think about it, and also to perhaps make make corrections. So,
0: so from from a for your coaches. Definitely put your coach's hat on. Would you start with the the posture, and oftentimes other things will take care of themselves? Or would you be hitting each individual? Component across that cascade. Yeah.
1: So, so great question. So, let's first start. Um, you know, by saying that, as I think a lot of your guests have said before, in individualization is key, right? So, a lot of athletes are going to have their own different individual corrections that needs to be made, and and so you know, having a coaching eye that that's treating every athlete as an individual and correcting them individually is is key. But. As a general rule, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Treating uh, posture and and pelvic position as as one A and one B, if you will, because um, just from my experience and also kind of from biomechanical foundations, if the posture and the pelvic position is is off, it's going to be pretty challenging for that athlete to do the other things correctly. I, I mean, if the if you're. Torso's hanging forward, or if you have, you know, uh, if the the back is arched and the pelvis is really anteriorly rotated, you can cue the athlete all you want to, to, hey, get your thigh up in front of you, or or that sort of thing. It's just not going to happen. Not going to happen. Yeah, and 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 then likewise, if they have you know, uh, if the posture is misaligned and the pelvis is anteriorly rotated to an excessive degree, the thigh is most likely going to swing too far back behind the body. That's going to cause them to strike out in front, no matter how much you cue it. So um, again, with my coach's hat on and and I want to give a shout out to, to the Westchester University uh, head track coach here, Jason Kilgore, when we teach our, our sprinting mechanics with our sprinters, either developmental or even with our upperclassmen, I mean, literally the first rule is posture, posture, posture. And, and that goes a long with the pelvic position as well. I mean, we emphasize that all the time. Now, to take a half step back, if we're doing some other drills as part of our warm up, I mean, just the classic stuff like marches and skips and straight leg runs and step overs are we emphasizing all of those qualities at different times in those drills? A hundred percent. Yeah. But, um, you know, with our step overs and our straight leg runs, I mean, we're definitely, you know, emphasizing ground contact and front side action and that sort of thing, but never to the detriment of, of posture and, and pelvic positions.
0: Of course. Is there anything you do that focuses specifically on the first two points Then posture and, and pelvis? <laughs>
1: Everything. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, but I, I mean, I, I think, um, I think my answer here will probably align with a lot of your previous guests. So, I mean, it's it's actually just a, a constant focus. So, er- everything in warm up, whether it's our hurdle mobility drills, whether it's our uh, dynamic warm up, you know, and, and the sprint drills that I just mentioned. It, and, you know, I like to keep it really simple with just marches, skips, straight leg runs, step overs. Um, with our track team, we use a, a lot of uh, mini hurdles, wickets. So, we do a lot of that. And that is clearly emphasizing posture, pelvic position. that, that sort of thing. But um, no, it, nothing that's really different, I don't think, or unique, but but really just attention to detail on those things, you know, on a, on a really um, constant uh, basis. So. Mm-hmm. so just diving into some
0: of your research on this next topic, which sure. is the differences and potential similarities of a team sport athlete and a elite sprinter or a team sport athlete, a sprinter and a recreational athlete what are the different i mean this could be like i guess we could probably go all day with this next question (laughs) but what are the what are the differences and what are the similarities
1: yeah absolutely so um Let's start with uh, top speed, actually, and that's, then we'll work our way backwards to acceleration and, and transitional acceleration. Sounds great. So um, most of my research is in top speed. That that comes from uh, my time at the SMU Locomotor Lab with Peter Wayne and, and Larry Ryan and also some of the stuff I'm doing now at Westchester. Um, the long story short is this. To, to run faster, ground contact times have to be shorter. Basically, the faster you go, the shorter the ground contact time is. There's always a vertical impulse requirement. Most runners spend about 0.12 seconds in the air. That means that everybody has a, a certain vertical impulse requirement in the ground contact time, in the time that they're applying force. The faster you go, the shorter the ground contact time, the larger the vertical forces need to be. So that's kind of a good starting place. So very generally speaking, if you look at a heterogeneous population of recreational trained athletes, to team sport athletes, to competitive sprinters, The faster athletes, i.e. the sprinters, are going to apply larger mass-specific vertical forces in shorter ground contact time. So that's kind of like big bullet point number one of top speed. And then you get into the how are they doing that. And Peter Wayne has, has, you know, um, published studies from 2000 to 2010 that, that showed that greater mass specific vertical force and shorter ground contact time for faster runners. I was lucky enough that as part of my doctoral research, we kind of were able to build on that. And what we showed was specifically, if you look at competitive sprinters, we had both elite sprinters and sub-elite sprinters and then team sport athletes that the faster sprinters are able to apply more vertical force, specifically in the first portion of ground contact. And that really you can start to tie in some of these kinematics with the kinetics. In other words, the good posture, the good front side mechanics, a really aggressive ground strike and a stiff ground contact. What that leads to is a high rate of force application, vertical force application we're talking here in the first portion of ground contact. And so, counterintuitively, if you looked at the second half of ground contact, competitive sprinters and team sport athletes and recreational athletes were all kind of the same. The quote-unquote push-off from a vertical force standpoint was all basically the same, but the faster sprinters were applying more force in the first half of ground contact. So I'll tie that in with some of my current research as well coming out of the Westchester Lab, and it's not only the, the posture and the frontside mechanics, but the ability to really attack the ground with a high angular velocity of the limb of the thigh rotating back towards the ground causes a high vertical velocity of the lower limb of the foot, ankle and shank as it contacts the ground. And that leads to the big impact forces vertically. And then you combine that with the ability to be stiff. And that's how these Uh, elite sprinters and faster runners, generally speaking, are generating more vertical force in the early portion of ground contact. Now, I'll come back to the horizontal forces at top speed momentarily, but let's now start to work our way back. So from top speed, okay, to run faster, got to have shorter ground contact times, need to have more force in less time to meet the impulse requirements, and the faster runners are doing that by good uh, frontside mechanics, aggressive ground strike, stiff ground contact, more vertical force. If we go back to initial acceleration and transitional acceleration, and this is where the research of J.B. Morin and colleagues, Matt Cross, Pierce Amazino, and then more recently uh, Ryu Nagahara, of course, Stephanie Collier, I wanna make sure I, I shout out all the great research groups, but basically um, greater horizontal propulsive forces and the early acceleration phase, and then a continued ability to attenuate the eccentric forces during transitional acceleration and continue to apply horizontal propulsive forces. So um, again, Newtonian mechanics kind of tells all of this from the initial acceleration all the way to top speed. This this nicely aligns with basic Newton's laws. But just to reiterate, In the initial acceleration phase, you have to apply enough vertical force to support your body weight, and then basically you want the rest of the force directed backwards, so that the action-reaction forces propel you forwards. Therefore, more anterior, posterior, or more anterior propulsive force early, and then continue to attenuate the braking forces and keep the force vector um, directed anteriorly during transitional acceleration. Last thing I'll hit here is, there's been a very recent study. I think it came out two days ago that I wanted to try to mention. I am not gonna be able to pronounce this researcher's last name appropriately, I apologize. But uh, Hans von Leers and Vilkow uh, and the Bazotis brothers, JB, and and uh, I think Gareth Stamford. that group, uh, Scott Simpson, they had a really interesting study looking at um, sprinters at uh, various phases throughout the sprint. And if we look at um, the top speed portion, they also showed that the peak propulsive forces were greater and the faster runners, which is interesting to me. Um, although I need to give this much uh, deeper a read and review, my initial interpretation is as follows. You could kind of sum it up by saying that faster runners apply the force vector more vertically during the early portion of ground contact, much more vertical force early on, as some of our research has shown. And then during the second half of ground contact, they direct the force vector more horizontally, greater peak propulsive forces. That's that's kind of my take, which is a really neat um, scientific interpretation of all this great research that's come out in the last uh, 10 years or so. So sorry, that was a really long answer. <laughs> no, 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 please. I,
0: I don't yeah, definitely don't apologize. No apology needed for great information. Please don't. Yeah, definitely not. Um, we've all seen the, oh, I think we've all seen, I'll try to describe it as best I can the, the treadmill, the two side by side sure. treadmills with the, the, the um, was it a recreational athlete or was it a He team was sport? he was actually Yeah,
1: uh, he was a team sport athlete, yeah. He was a um, University Lacrosse player who he wasn't <laughs> his mechanics weren't good, but he wasn't slow. He could run about twenty miles an hour, nine meters a second. But yes. Yeah. Yep. So, so in that example, and that, again
0: that was just coming to my mind because of what you presented in your Alfred's sure. presentation. Yeah. Is that I mean, how old is how old is that? That's that's a couple of years old with the-
1: that is, yeah. So uh, I believe that was about 2012, 2013 when that video was uh first first filmed, something like that. Okay. So
0: yeah, yep. So the to the take-home points back then and how that looks and how you were presenting it. Yep, uh, is is all them take take-home messages from 2012 been backed up in what's coming out now and how the field is moving on, or is there certain things that potentially thought back then that maybe we're starting to think slightly differently
1: yeah I, I mean i think um and and those slide that that slide uh, as i said in the altus presentation you know was put up strictly for point of contrast i mean that was okay. like the best of the best sprinter mechanics you know towards a technical model and and the, the worst of the worst if you will um no, I, I mean i think there is some gray area for for sure um both you know there's certainly you know um a bandwidth around the certain aspects of, of top speed technique, even if you look at various um, sprinters, I, I think there's key positions absolutely that you want to hit and, um, and general shapes that need to be hit. Um, I, you know, I've seen perhaps a little bit more um, a bandwidth or variability than than just strictly what's in that one point of comparison video. Um, I don't think that there's any doubt, though, that that sprinters, at least if you look at a hundred meter dash, they need to hit a certain high knee position in a position to. Attack the ground, apply a lot of force, and then not only have the thigh accelerate down towards the ground, but have the thigh accelerate through ground contact. Those, that fact is is still really true, and and really no different than than what we were talking about back then. And and certain aspects of physics don't lie. We still need to apply a lot of vertical force in short contact times. You know, as far as the team sport athletes, I, I guess the only point where my um, probably um, perspective has changed a little bit is, you know, just a, a better understanding of, hey, in a, in a game situation, you know, they're they're rarely going to run like this. What does that mean as far as how we train them? And I think my pendulum swung one way, swung all the way back, and now I'm somewhere back in the middle of just, you know, kind of touching upon what we said earlier, which is understanding that, hey, that in a game situation, they're, they're rarely going to perhaps run like this because the game constraints. But with that being said, you still want to teach to a, a tech- model and, and training for various reasons, just understanding that they are perhaps rarely going to uh, look like a, a sprinter, that sort of thing. So.
0: so I asked this to Stu when I had him on probably quite a few months ago, now probably three yeah. or four months ago. At what point, and this was his answer, I think seemed to remember was something like that's the art of coaching. Yeah. So maybe, maybe, that, maybe this is going to be your answer as well. Yeah. But at what point does that switch over to become a little bit more contextual of We have that technical model. We've been moving towards that technical model. Things are improving, but we do know that's not going to happen very very often on the field or court. So we're going to now transition a little bit over to something that looks a little bit more like what happens on the field or court. At what point does that happen?
1: Yeah, that that's a great question, and I'm I'm certainly not a, a coach to the level of Stu. That that's for sure. I can only say with the athletes that, that I coach, the, the team sport athletes, that I'm just um, always looking for you know a, a gradual progression towards some of those key attractors, if you will, and and that and just kind of knowing that when I do video analysis or just when I'm watching them uh, live, speed, just just knowing that it's it's rarely going to look exactly like the sprinter, but knowing that that's generally where I want them to. Progress. Progress too, And that, you know, I guess um, if I had to track back to my previous answer, just knowing that if even there can be um, some semblance of that on the field, that, that, that that's a victory, I, I think that if the, if there's a breakaway run, whether it's in football, rugby, you name it, that if they're able to get into those mechanics at all, that, that that's a that that's a great thing. Just putting my, I guess, my coach's eye on as I look as as a, you know, a fan, if you will. It's really interesting to watch some of the faster athletes like a Carlin Isles or some, you know, American football wide receivers. You get a real diversity some of the faster athletes in breakaway situations get into mechanics that almost look very much like a sprinter and then some don't and are still quite fast, even though they don't have quote unquote sprint mechanics. So um, that's really not just a, that's not an answer per se, just an observation, but I I think it's, it's interesting. And I guess I'm going to continue to um, progress my, my answer to that question over time, just from getting a better understanding of, of what, really that the fast team sport athletes are doing on the field. So. so we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Ken. Hope you're part one.
0: So coming up in part two, we discuss velocity profiling versus total time, or a little bit more on this subject. Then we finish off with some chat around resisted sprints and how the research can potentially be translated into practice and we also get ken's uh, coach's hat uh, well ken puts his coaching hat on and gives his perspective when it comes to research with resisted sprints so a very very good part two coming up definitely living up to part one But just before we do dive into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Hawking Dynamics for sponsoring this episode today. So Hawking Dynamics offer the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you are able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud based system from anywhere in the world. head over to the website uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com um, which you can I mean, you can also schedule a demo and follow them on twitter at hawkingdynamics and also sponsoring this episode today is black box fitness so black box fitness are a sports performance equipment manufacturer based in Belfast in Northern Ireland so if you are looking for a full gym fit out if you're lucky enough be looking for a full gym fit out or just want to add additional pieces to what you've already got whether that be barbells dumbbells plates maybe a new rack some flooring etc etc have a little look at what Black Box Fitness can offer. So you can head to their website, which is blkboxfitness.com, or for a more informal view of what they do, head over to their Instagram, because they've got some really cool images of some of the recent projects that they've run in Australia, in the UK, in Europe, etc. So head over to their Instagram, which is at blkboxfitness, and they're the same on Twitter. Absolutely, no. That that's that's great. So my next point, a little bit of a transition, and go sure. toward more the, the the profiling side of things. Absolutely. And this came from again my going through old episodes. This one not so old, and it was Jonas Doddy, who, you, who you've you've mentioned already, especially before we hit record. And it was his uh, explanation of profiling his guys through acceleration. And although two athletes may get very similar times. What happens after that is what we, the transition past that if it's a 10-meter time that we're looking at for acceleration, what happens during that that 10 meters and what's going to happen after is actually what's important, not the actual time itself because some people may be in a position to get faster and faster and faster and some maybe not. So in that profiling question, What's your, what's your philosophy when it comes to that and putting the coach's hat back on um, when it comes to profiling and actually what is important and how you go about it?
1: Yeah. So, so great question. And I, I love this topic. So um, I'll, I'll try to wear both coach and researcher hats here. So, so from a, you know, profiling, at how do you do it? I mean, I, I typically uh, go with one of, of two methods. I mean, I have a, um, a radar gun, which, you know, I have from the lab, but I can use it with the athletes I coach as well. So if it's literally just comes down to collecting radar data and getting velocity time data, um, I do that on a, I'd say somewhat infrequent basis, although I do it. And then I um, Uh, More often than not, uh, just getting split time data from an automatic timing system, but then fitting the velocity time profile from that. In other words, using the split time data to velocity uh, profile. And I I think the point you brought up is is so important. Um, You know, there are certainly game situations where for team sport athletes, the ability to to accelerate 10 yards is that's it. You're just beating an opponent to a spot or the ball, and it doesn't really matter what happens, you know, 11 yards and beyond. But – for either sprinters or team sport athletes in, in other circumstances, it's not a race to ten yards or ten meters. For example, on day one of of training our sprinters in the blocks at Westchester, we say you never win a conference championship for who's in first place at 10 meters. That's I mean it's a hundred meter dash. And and the goal, as you just said, is is not to be first to ten meters if it doesn't set you up well for the rest of the sprint. I mean the goal of the of the start and initial acceleration is of course to to be Uh, fast and powerful, but it has to set you up well for the rest of the sprint. And I think that's where velocity profiling, um, you know, is is really key. So the way I like to do it is as follows. Um, I typically will do, you know, split times and then model the velocity versus time profile from there, and then get a, a, a Vmax, a, a maximum velocity, a maximum acceleration, and a, a tau value, which is the acceleration time constant. Um, that's essentially the same per, for those uh, listeners who are familiar with all the, the great work that um, JB and Pierce Amazino and Matt Cross have done. That's essentially the same as, as V0, F0, and the force velocity slope. So from those characteristics, you can basically put Um, one single number on what's the athlete's top speed, what's their initial acceleration, and the tau value, which is really interesting to me, is how well does the athlete accelerate relative to top speed? So you can compare athletes across the board, but if an athlete makes training gains, like let's say you work with them over 10 weeks or 12 weeks and they get faster, the profiling of those three metrics allows you um, specific insight as to did their Max velocity get better? Did their initial acceleration get better? How did they accelerate relative to top speed? And I guess one could argue, well, you could just do that just from the split times themselves. But this gives you a little bit more specific insight as to, did they have a global improvement in speed? Did they just get faster in all areas? Or did they get faster in one specific area? If we were targeting initial acceleration with some heavy resisted sled runs, for example, were we successful in improving their initial acceleration, their F-naught, if you will? If we were really targeting their top speed, were we uh, successful in that? So I I like to do velocity profiling and, and you know, Vmax, max A-max, and tau, or if you want to phrase it, F-naught, V-naught, F-naught, and force velocity slope for those reasons. I, I think it's great to compare athletes against each other and athletes within themselves. Last thing I'll say is, um, you know, again, has, has been um, – popularized by by other groups in, in Europe the individualized training approach where you can do force velocity profiling or velocity profiling and and see where an athlete is relatively weaker uh, I, I think is is really um, really key and I, I think that allows for some great insights as to you know not a, applying a, a one-size-fits-all approach um, I think there's certainly some global, speed development things that all athletes need to work on but but using that information which is easy to access with current technology to to dictate um you know exercise prescription if you will speed speed training prescription i I think is um is really key so Would, would, would that change or be modified or you'd be looking for
0: slightly different nuances within that for a team sport athlete versus a
1: a sprinter yeah, so, um, and again, I think there's going to be some some research on this that's probably forthcoming if I had to guess, but um, slightly different velocity profiles for uh, team sport athletes and, and sprinters, and I'm not talking about the absolute velocity. I, I think everyone who knows speed training, you know, understands that sprinters, all things being equal, hit faster max velocities deeper into the run. I mean, that that's well known. But if you look at um, one reason why I like the, the tau value. Value, which is the the um, negative inverse of force-velocity slope, the tau value tells you how the athlete is accelerating relative to their top speed. What and for team sport athletes they can accelerate a little bit faster relative to top speed than a sprinter a sprinter if they hit top speed at the 10 meter mark well they're done then they got 90 <laughs> meters to decelerate so that's no good so we all know yeah. that the accelerate and sprinters need to you know accelerate maximally and yet there's a specific 100 meter velocity profile that's going to lead to the best 100 meter Time And if they hit top speed too early, that's certainly not a good thing from an overall 100-meter standpoint. If you're looking at, for example, an American football player running a 40-yard dash or a soccer or rugby player uh, running a 30-meter sprint – that acceleration profile to to optimize their performance is not going to necessarily be the same as a hundred meter sprinter. They don't have to worry about a deceleration phase. They're running 30 meters or 40 yards. So um, there are some specifics that you can get out of the velocity profiling and and perhaps what's optimal for a hundred meter sprinter compared to what's optimal for a team sport athlete. Those are definitely different things due to the context of, of the sprint.
0: So as Jonas mentioned when we, when we started talking about it, obviously very rarely a team sport athlete will have to do nothing at the end of that 10-meter sprint or 30-meter sprint. They're going to have to react. Yep. they to, to, to have to stop and go the other way. Is there anything in terms of the, the shapes that you're looking for or what you're seeing visually and potentially quantifying that puts them in a better position at them times, whether it be Whatever you're assessing, ten or thirty, to be able to do them other things, i.e., react or stop or
1: yeah, that, that's a spot. That do right, right. That that's a great um, great question. I, I guess um, the one thing I'm looking for, and this is going to be relatively qualitative, so nothing that I'm that I'm quantitatively um, measuring, but is. Um, how in control or out of control they are. So sometimes yep. team sport athletes will run a sprint, especially if their mechanics haven't really been coached up. And, I mean, it is guns blazing all over the all over the place, you. 110%. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, even if the time is okay, they're just not in the position at the end of 30 meters or 40 yards to do anything athletic. I mean, if they don't flat out pull a hamstring at the end of that, they're certainly not in a position to to change direction or decelerate or anything. So, So from a very qualitative standpoint, I I of course want the mechanics to be good and and the time to be fast, but that athlete should still be maintaining at the end of the run, 30 meters, 40 yards, whatever. Um, Mechanics that are, you know, powerful but under control, not uh, landing way out in front with limbs flailing to assert to, you know, to the point where you could coach them that if they needed to decelerate, they could. Perfect example is in American football, the kickoff, although that that's slowly being phased out of the game. Athletes need to sprint, you know, a relatively far distance reach pretty fast top speeds and mechanics that are somewhat upright. But then if they're on the kickoff coverage, they need to be able to, you know, break down and come to a stop to react to a ball carry so that they can make a tackle. That encompasses a lot of the qualities that you're talking about. So if an athlete was used to getting up into fast, um, you know, at fast speeds with, with poor mechanics and out of control, they'd really be in terrible position to break down and make a tackle. So something, you know, for that situation, just, um, fast, powerful, but but not all over the place, not out of control. So. I know zero about American football, so no problem.
0: <laughs> going on a slightly off topic here, but why yeah. why the players not the kickoff? Uh, just I think due to concussions and injuries. Oh so. right, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Well, when are they actually coming? Are they are they scheduled to come back September? Uh, <laughs> you, does anyone know?
1: <laughs> I, the situation is fluid. I think so. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but it's supposed to be September, is it? I think I think so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Current situation. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I understand. Yep. I hear you. Um so we've done 40 minutes, which is which has been superb so far. And I think it what I tried to split it nicely into was kind of three 20-minute chunks and we're sure another five seconds and I'm nearly there. Um, resisted sprints being the final point that I'd like to, um, like to tap into. Again, I'm going to refer back to some sure. things that have been talked about in previous episodes with, with Cam Joss, who, who broke down the 40 meter split. And I think he presented it a very similar thing at, um, again, Altus. Altus is getting a lot of love on this, by the way. Um, <laughs> Stu well can observed. send me the, uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Stu can send me the five pound in the post. Um, but yeah, he presented that and uh, the 40 meter time and how he split it into uh, 10, 20, 30, and, and where different exercises fit to actually enhance those qualities within them, um, in them splits. But in that, and not maybe not having that as a, um, as a structure, but I think it's quite nice because I've just tried to describe it as well as I could. But where does heavy, well, not heavy, but we can go with heavy first, where does heavy resistance training fit? in that model, as I've just described, from Cam?
1: Yeah, the the resisted sprint training, I mean, I think undoubtedly, you know, you're looking at the ability to apply initial uh, propulsive force and start an initial acceleration, which would be – 10 to 20 yards, the first 10 to 20 yards. So uh, uh, also, you know, uh, Cam, that was an incredible podcast. I, I listened to that one with you. He he is an extremely bright guy. I've had some some really good interaction with him. But, um, yeah, I love the way he analyzes, you know, um, sprinting for team sport athletes. And I think, um, you know, a lot of the research, again, there's been several studies that have come out lately to to name drop and, and give credit where it's due. But uh, J.B. Marin and his group, uh, Johan Lotte has done some with um, rugby players and I think professional soccer players. Uh, one research group that I've been um, uh, proud to be involved with is with uh, Michal Cahill and John Cronin at looking at it and team sport athletes in high school males. So, um, and and so the research is starting to become pretty conclusive that heavy resisted sprint training in team sport athletes is, is effective for improving initial acceleration. And um, I've used it a lot. Uh, myself, coaching team sport athletes, specifically American football players. We use it with the Westchester track and field team with our sprinters. Um, And I I love it for a couple of reasons. So number one, you know, I I think sometimes there's a a complaint per se that, hey, if you really load up athletes heavy, that you're going to get some detrimental uh, technique changes. I I think there's going to be some research that that shows that that's, you know, in the long term, what the long term transfer is, that that's just not. Not not the case. So I I don't see any real negative long term transfer of changes in technique. Um, If anything, I would argue the opposite. So, one thing we've noticed with our Westchester sprinters is if you do resisted um, sleds specifically and you've got the heavy load and the straps behind the athlete, it can actually give a really nice environmental constraint to say, hey, don't let your heels hit the straps behind you. Keep the the thigh recovery in front of you as you kind of push punch with the thighs. So applying a lot of force down and back into the ground at the same time, keeping the thigh recovery relatively front side. So ironically, I actually love heavy resisted sprints almost as a technical cue for the athletes, in addition to specific um, force producing capabilities. Um, and so uh, not only with our sprinters, with the team sport athletes I've trained, and then some of the research I've been involved with, with uh, Michal Cahill and others, I, I think that you're seeing the ability to just basically uh, get off the line and, and apply a lot of force That it's that's where it's really effective. Um, from the research that's out there, and then also uh, my own personal experience, and frankly from my master's thesis way back when, I don't think it's as effective at top speed once you're past 20 yards. There's probably a little bit of, of debate about that, and I'm not talking, um, you know, heavy sled training. I, I, I don't personally do any resisted sprint training past 20 yards. Although I know there's a lot of great coaches and other practitioners who do. So that's perhaps a little bit of area of, you know, just um, debate. But um, to me, I think it's most effective zero to 20. And for those who, who are going to do um, – resisted sprint training past 20, clearly there I would think you would want to do it with relatively lighter loads. The, the one argument that I would um, totally buy or, or rationale, I suppose, that I would totally buy is if you're doing resisted sprint training and it's past 20 yards once the athlete is into the his or her upright um, mechanics, that, that it should be light and I think it should be done with a waist harness to provide just a little bit of an environmental cue, to, so that the athlete can feel that they need to bring the hips up and forward because the resistance is just pulling the hips down and back a little bit. So um, I know some coaches who do it past 20 yards, some really good coaches for that matter. And and the, the kind of the argument is, hey, we just do a little bit of light resistance to keep them projecting and pushing um, horizontally, and and also to give a, a good Hip position or, or a good feel for how the athlete needs to keep the hips up and in, and and that rationale I, I think would be justified. So not something that I do with with the athletes that I coach, but but I, I think that the latter rationale there for doing light resisted sprints uh, at top speed um, I think is is pretty reasonable. So so that's kind of my view, but um, but yeah, I, I think um, more and more. Um, coaches and 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 researchers are going to get comfortable with loading up their athletes pretty heavy at the start and and you know even if the mechanics look a little bit different acutely just knowing that you know in the long term that's going to lead to good um good changes in the ability um to apply force early on and and you know good improvements in initial acceleration
0: yeah i remember jb talking about the acute versus the the chronic adaptations sure. and not been, yeah. not being too scared with what you're seeing there and then, but knowing that's gonna pay off um, in the longer term. Yeah.
1: Y- yeah. I, and and again, just to just to hit the point I already said, you know, whereas perhaps, you know, five years ago i would be scared of that now it is an active cue uh again uh, coach jason kilgore at westchester that we give with our sprinters is hey push hard through the ground and then the thighs got to recover in front of you your heels shouldn't be clipping the strap feet don't clip the strap of the sled if you will it's actually we've seen from a technical standpoint that that cue sometimes works better doing resisted sprint training for the start with our developmental sprinters than anything else as far as teaching them how the, the the ground strike, but then also the thigh recovery needs to happen during initial acceleration. So I, I think it's got uh, multiple benefits, so. So anyone watching on YouTube will see me scribbling down notes,
0: so I may have <laughs> missed this next bit and I may just, you may just be repeating it, but why don't you use resisted sprints after 20 meters? Did you already yeah. say that and I've missed
1: it? At- no, I, I didn't say okay. that. Um, I mean, I guess part of it is just I, um, my own research experience. So my master's thesis looked at um, – two forms of resisted sprint training specifically for top speed. This was not uh, looking at initial acceleration. This was in um, uh, American uh, small college lacrosse players, male lacrosse players. And we did a, a seven week uh, training study and we all know training studies are difficult and there's some confounding variables, but um, ironically we found that the athletes who trained without resistance, we did resisted sleds, and resisted vests and then an unresisted group and the group that trained unresisted made the biggest speed improvements um and it actually they they made bigger speed improvements than the group that that trained with resisted sleds now um the study wasn't perfect no study is but um that just from that research experience coupled with you know the mechanics of of um speed and and trying to emphasize a little bit more of posture and the vertical force um that's kind of why i've gone away from doing resisted uh resisted sprints past 20 yards so uh, again putting my coaching hat on when we do resisted sprints whether it's with the westchester track team or with the team sport athletes i coach they're they're typically um you know 20 uh, 20 meters 20 yards or, or less basically
0: for those people that maybe haven't used this modality with their and we'll go team sport athletes as an example sure. and you said that it was the biggest potential technical um way to improve people technically um early on what, what would you what would you suggest what where would you suggest people start with weights and um, and length of sprint and that type of thing to, to start off with anyone that hasn't done this before
1: yeah. Great question. So I think that's really key, uh, for anyone who's, you know, not just listened to this podcast, but, you know, has listened to all yours before, or just all the research that's out there on heavy resistance sprints, um, diving right into really heavy loads of, you know, 60, 70, 80% body mass. Uh, I think, you know, is, is clearly not a great idea. <laughs> like anything else, it's gotta be, you know, uh, progressive overload that, that sort of thing. Um, You know, particularly for developmental athletes who, you know, you're not quite sure what their um, relative strength qualities are. So um, with the team sport athletes that that I'm working with, you know, we start at at just like – uh, empty sled, just to get used to pulling the harness and that sort of thing, and then every week progress it a little bit more. And I just do either um, automatic timing system based timing or actually video based timing, just knowing what the distance and the and the time is to get velocity measurements, so that I know exactly kind of what percentage of maximum velocity they're at what what load is causing what velocity decrement because i think as a lot of um, great research is out there by matt cross and others you know you can't just put on a load as a percentage of body mass or just a load and and say hey we're progressing it this way the best way to do it given the different friction of surfaces etc cetera, etc cetera, is is to do it as a percentage of maximum velocity and, and what percentage decrease you're doing so um, gradually i've just progressed it over the course of four to five weeks, if I have an athlete for a, a long period of time, until at about the fourth or fifth week, we're working at a load where the athlete is at roughly 50% velocity decrease. So that that's where some of the literature is pointing as, um, as optimal loading for uh, doing the heavy resisted sprints. And so um, again, a gradual progressive overload, building them up. I haven't had any problems doing it that way. As far as athletes, uh, you know, uh, any increased risk of injury or athletes Complaining and and from a technical standpoint, again, this is just purely qualitative with my coaching hat on and and not my research hat. But from a from a qualitative standpoint, that allows the athletes to get a, a feel for it, for lack of a better term, to gradually get the feel for the load behind them and still running with with good mechanics. Um, one other thing I want to point out too, why I like uh, the resisted sprints. From a, actually, from a technical standpoint, with team sport athletes who have a tendency to spin the wheels really fast, like the, you know, high turnover at the start and initial acceleration, but they're just not completing their pushes, if you will. They're not getting anywhere. They're not projecting. The load behind them, the resistance behind them provides, again, a good um, cue or constraint or however you want to phrase it, that they really need to apply force and project out with their initial steps. And, and so for athletes that perhaps are spinning the wheels and not getting anywhere, or the, the limbs are recovering way behind them at initial acceleration, I think the sled actually is a really great teaching tool. The resistance sled is actually a really great teaching tool. In addition to, to of course, the the force producing capabilities that, that you're working on. So that was actually my next point. So we
0: all know that in, especially in team sports, it's um, times limited. Yeah. So using this as, the, as a teaching tool could be the way to go to actually try to maximize the fifteen minutes or the twenty minutes that you've got maybe per week to actually um, actually make some improvements transfer onto the pitch, but the technical aspect as well.
1: Yeah, it's um, I, I think that's one of the areas where you know there's the most research that still needs to be done, and and to a certain extent. It's a little bit of a it's a difficult question to answer but it's how to optimize your training time right that's like a really abstract question but it, it's a great question you know as you just said that, that's kind of like the million dollar question is you know whether you're in the off season or once you're in the in season what gets you the most bang for the buck? Uh, I'm of a, a firm believer that you need to train both acceleration and top speed qualities on a regular basis, both for performance and to reduce the risk of injury. So I do think you need to hit both, both qualities, but as it relates to um, acceleration. Yeah. I think that potentially you're getting a lot of bang for your buck by doing some resisted sprint work as part of that. I, I think you wouldn't, uh, I just opinion here and and not um quantitatively backed up but i think you wouldn't want to do all resisted sprint training i think you know you'd certainly want to um do some resisted and some unresisted you know contrasting them potentially that sort of thing but but yeah i think you would want to keep some of that in at a, at a lot of different parts of the of the training calendar so
0: awesome i know we've touched on a few things that are potentially Coming out from from your group, or yeah. uh, by the time this comes out, have come out hopefully. But is there anything past that, any, any,
1: any exciting stuff that you've got in the pipeline? Yeah, absolutely. So um, you know, we have a, a big data collection from the Westchester Performance Lab. Hopefully, there's going to be a couple of things coming from that. Again, um, looking at uh, angular motion of the limbs. Um, Triangular velocity that sort of thing as it relates to speed and uh, mechanisms of force application um, and then also looking at uh, another data set is just um, really going through um, some of the USA track and field there, there's always just great data I do some um, consulting with them uh, and, and Dr. Ralph Mann and Amber Murphy and, and we've got some exciting things just that we're uh, looking at right now as it as it relates to um, you know again what <laughs> what makes fast people fast and 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 that case with the the track and field data uh sub elite sub elite if you will so um yeah looking at um differences between like uh practice and competition which is um in the track and field world really not that well known so okay. um so that that's kind of next on on tap from from the research world both from the Westchester lab and and otherwise so um you know as you said this is getting uh broadcast in six or seven weeks hopefully there's more news on that by the time this hits air
0: but Absolutely. Well, when it does come out, it's weird because I'm speaking as if it's happened, even though it's not. <laughs> but yeah, hopefully, right. hopefully it has come out, and we can we can link to it and, Definitely. and get that shared, and and it will make a lot of sense when people listen and and have a read sure. the paper. But Ken, thank you very much for coming on. I really do appreciate it. If people want to get to know more about you, um, research-wise or even presentation-wise, especially during lockdown, because there's been plenty going on for you and for everyone else. Um, online, of course, where's the best place for people to go and what resources can, can people get hold of?
1: Yeah. Um, so I'm on social media at Ken Clark and then I'm proud to say just launched a, a website recently. So that's uh, kenclarkspeed.com nice. So that's uh, kind of a, a housing platform for, um, all of the different, uh, resources, both research wise, coaching wise, um, social media, that sort of thing. So, uh, Ken, uh, KenClarkspeed.com was probably the best best place. So. so Clark with No E. Clark with No E. K-E-N-C-L A R K Speed Yep.
0: Awesome. So just tapping into that little bit of info. I didn't realise that was that was there. What's what's gonna be on there, Ken? I'm always interested when people do these kind of things and stuff yeah. websites and what kind of results is.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, it, it really just, uh, grew out of necessity for, you know, a, a place to kind of talk about all things speed you know, I'm a one trick yeah. pony and that's really what I like to do is, <laughs> is, is talk about the, the science and the application of, of speed and performance. So, um, you know, so links to uh, some of my research and, and research that I've collaborated with with others. Um, right, uh, links to um, uh, online education and and social media and um, you know, as I said, really just a, um, a housing platform for the various. Projects that I'm involved with from a um, sports science, performance training, and and um, speed training standpoints. So um, yeah, that'll. I think what's nice about that is before you know whether it was doing a podcast or, or or doing a presentation, people would ask, well, how how can I get a you know get in contact with you or get a hold of resources? I had really no good answer. So um, with the with, with the the broadcasting of the of the website now, it's kind of like um, it's just a nice place for me to uh, organize it all. So. Makes complete sense. Exciting times. Yeah, that. it is it is exciting for sure.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Ken. Thank you for getting up in an hour of your time, plus all the time in prep and getting this getting this organized. I really do appreciate it.
1: Oh, man. Thank thank you so much for having me on, Rob. It's been great. Uh, it's always just fun talking about everything speed and performance-related. And, um, you know, uh, really a pleasure. This, this podcast is really incredible. I listen to it on a regular basis, and I'm honored just to be uh, kind of among the guests that you've had on here. It's a it's a really great resource for the, the Sports, for, Sports for Mormons community. So... Thank you very much. Appreciate
0: those kind words as well. And we'll keep in touch and I'll speak to you soon. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. Thanks, Ken. Thanks for tuning in to episode 307 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the chat with Ken. So if you are looking to get your guys fast, make sure you check out episodes with Jonas Dodu, Stuart McMillan, Cam Joss, just to name three that have been absolutely superb over the last six months. Also, big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, to I Measure You, to Black Box Fitness, Kitman Labs, and brand new sponsor, Perch. So if you're looking to upgrade your VBT system, your velocity-based training system, check the guys out at Perch. They're doing an amazing job. New kids on the block, but definitely one to check out if you are looking into velocity-based training. So thank you very much for tuning in, and I will chat to you next week.